Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. Well, how are you today, Rob? And Merry Christmas, Robert. Merry Christmas, Russell Tovey. Today, Russell, I am feeling like I was born to mince. You were. I was. <laughs> and, um, for those international listeners who might not understand the word mince, it's not cut up or grinded meat, ground meat, sorry, um, grinded. That sounds like a, a dating app. It actually yeah. does mean walking with a short, quick step in an affectedly dainty manner, which is obviously me on a daily. But it's also <laughs> partly why I am like that is because I was... Um, almost like given the agency to by today's guest, because in the mid-1980s, I was probably like five, six years old. And I remember he hit our screens and I used to sort of see him on BBC or ITV or different shows. And at the time, obviously those networks were where we all went to. It was kind of, you know, millions and millions and millions of people watching each, each of these evening shows. And from a really young age, the age of sort of five, six, seven, I was already like a ballet dancer. I was quite camp. I loved pop music. I loved Kylie. And the whole of my existence was quite different to the rest of the guys at school because they were all quite into rugby. They were like lads. And I just never fitted in. And for the first time on the screen, I saw someone like me. Obviously, they were an adult and they were very, very funny, which I wasn't. But um, <laughs> but they did give sure me... you was. <laughs> they did give me agency and permission and, and a kind of strength to sort of stand up to the bullies and be myself. And I distinctly remember my brother, who's obviously now passed away, but I remember him being really into our guest today's um, comedy because it, it, it was so kind of left wing and a relief from the conservative environment that we were growing up in. And it was almost, again, a way of realizing that there was another way of looking at the world. And even though we did love our parents and stuff, uh, a lot of the time, the kind of culture we grew up in was so conservative as it still is. And it's so wonderful. Our friend Susie just produced produce Friday Night Live, the kind of comeback version of it on Channel 4. And when I turned it on and saw our guest doing the most amazing stand-up, I was so relieved because we need people like him right now. The world is so messed up. Um, and I think it always probably will be because human nature is just this horrible thing that um, just goes around in cycles. But we do have to keep fighting. And um, I think what better way to do that than through comedy and being funny and uh, just speaking the truth. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art for our very special Christmas bonus episode the wonderful julian, julian clary hello it's quite it's quite a build-up i'm worried that i'm going to be a disappointment now <laughs> Not you'll all. never be a disappointment you're like the most iconic guest we've ever had i swear to god i love you so much i know we've never actually met you but big fan oh well happy christmas to you oh, well thank you thank you well we have met julian we've met on a game show panel show called just a minute Yes, I did that when you was on there, and we've also we also share the same vet. So I yes, think I we met a few months ago. <laughs> yeah, now that met... is glamorous, a celebrity vet. Love this. I think Adele goes there as well. To be honest, I've heard that she's sometimes well, he, in there with he's her. Been pubs. my vet since I used to perform with Fanny the Wonder Dog no in way. the eighties, and I used to live just opposite that vet is a housing co-op called Seymour Housing Co-op. That's where I used to live. So, yes, I used to go there with Fanny, uh, and I still do. Fanny's long gone, of course. 
And you you were yes. clutching a French bulldog, I believe, Russell. I have. Well, that's Rocky. Rocky's Rocky's still here, and I have two Basset hounds, Archie and Cooper. And yeah, that's our vet as well, and it's an amazing place. But dogs, dogs. Let's talk about dogs then, because they are incredibly important to you. And you mentioned Fanny, who was part of your act when you first started on the comedy scene and everyone associated you with Fanny the Wonder Dog and you've always had a dog and you've released a book called The Lick of Love, uh, How Dogs Changed My Life. They've had a massive impact on you and I, I definitely have that affinity with you. Well you'll understand how they enhance your life, that's that's kind of what I get from dogs and um, I wanted to write another autobiography but I didn't just want it to be showbiz stuff so I thought if you kind of if the focus is on the dogs and how in each chapter of my life there seems to have been a different dog Mm. sent to my side by some kind of higher force it it feels like in that it was the right dog at the right time so yes I can't I can't imagine I've got Albert asleep next to me now he is quite elderly and upstairs causing trouble is Gigi Neither of whom are basset hounds. They are, let's say, parents unknown kind of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where do we find you? Because we find you slap bang in the middle of panto season. So thank you so much for finding the time because you must be exhausted because you have like nine shows a day, right, when you do panto? <laughs> well, we have, we have two a day, 12 a week, and we've just done our first full week. So um, it's a, you, you, you do get zombified, you know, because there's nothing, no room left, no energy left for anything else. But when the call came to speak to you on Christmas Day, I thought, well, <laughs> I'll make an effort. But I may have trouble stringing a sentence together. You find me in, um, I'm at home in a place called London, in Camden Town in North London. And actually, you're, you're, you're sat in between two artworks as well behind you. There are two Damien Hurst works, I think, behind you. Yes. What do you think? My husband, you know, they, they were sort of advertised just for a week. And if you wanted to to order them he would then make as many as were ordered it was quite a clever money-making ruse <laughs> we found <laughs> definitely into it and he bought one for me and one for him so his is that one mm-hmm. which is rather more attractive than mine but they're very nice to live with they're very cheerful and for those who can't see obviously all of our listeners um they are uh, blossom trees aren't they they're kind of like in yeah, blue, cherry pink, blossom. pink yeah cherry blossom so they're, they're very kind of um alluring works i guess like People love Are you blossoms. touching yourself while you're speaking to me, Robert? I am. I'm, I'm touching my shoulder. You're cr- um, caressing your I just, I'm actually touching my heart because <laughs> I, just love, I just love Julian Clary that much. I've gone straight to the heart. So um, the, you are right that Damien, Damien is very good at money-making schemes when it comes to art. But as a, as a collection, are you collecting contemporary artists or YBA artists, a young British artist, which Damien firmly belongs to? I don't think so. I'm, I'm, I'm very fickle and think, oh, I'm, you know, if I see something, I've, I've got my favourite's Peter Blake because we, we, we like kind of cheerful, bright things. Oh, I've got um, what's that? That's Keith Herring opposite me. Ooh. Oh, they're nice. I like things that are quite witty and. Um, but no, I wouldn't say I'm collecting things. I, but we've we've almost run out of wall space because we've got such a lot of things. But it. it is anything from Noel Coward to Damien Hurst, and I've got a, a very sweet pencil drawing by Cocteau, which I, I must have bought 20 years ago, and it's a, a soldier asleep, and he's touching himself as well. His flies are undone. There's, it's obviously a sort of post-coital nap going on. <laughs> but that's nice. What's the, what's the Keith Herring you have? What's that image? It is... Um, one of those men just done in black and his penis is erect and it's turning into another a man, little man, who's fighting with someone next to them. Oh, it's so It's good. symbolic, I expect. Has it got a red border? It has, an orange yes. border. Yes, yes, yes. I know them. They're, they're yes. great. Obsessed. And uh, I never tire of it. Really nice things you don't tire of looking at, do you? Sometimes. I did, I did change the Keith Herring because it's the first thing you see when you come into the house into this room anyway. I changed it for a while for something else and uh, I missed it. So I had to go back. So as you've, you know, they say about uh, a really nice collection feels like a self-portrait. In some ways, you're looking at the the works behind you that your husband bought for you and yourself. But like the Keith Herring, was this bought at a time 
in your life and the Peter Blakes when you had like a certain job and you invested in art or you were gifted it? Do you feel like you can recognize a moment in time by the art that you live with? I'm trying to, I went through a phase of buying things at auctions when you could do it online. It would be like, I think it was Christie's or something. And I had a bigger house at the time and I would, and you can only see it on your screen as a tiny little image. I thought, oh, that looks oh. quite nice. <laughs> Lots of greens. I'll have that. And you, you get carried away bidding for things and then they arrive and you are, you kind of either like them or you don't. So um, I'm more likely to buy things if I'm walking past a gallery. There's one in Marlebone. Well, it's gone now, actually. It's called Railings. That's where I bought mm-hmm. Peter Blake. In fact, I was walking past it with my mother and I, we stopped and, I admired it. It's one of those sort of circular target, target. thing with a heart, yes. heart in the mm. middle. And um, anyway, we walked past it and then she bought it for me as a surprise for Christmas. And uh, so that's, that's sort of how I come by things in, I, I never think I must add to my collection. That seems a bit too proper for me. <laughs> and you, you, you mentioned um, Noel Coward, and I know that you used to live in a house that he once lived in, obviously before our time. And I've weirdly recently been to that house for the new owner, which I won't say who it is because obviously they're very private, but it's the most amazing house. And I think it's even meant to be haunted, but I, don't, I didn't feel like that to me. But is that why you also have Noel Coward's um, you know, work in your house? No, no I, bought, I bought the Noel Coward a long time ago from one of these auctions the first one oh, cool. which is of um it looks like venice but it might be might not be it's it's sort of rather muscular um shirtless men on a boat with big oh, wow. poles and i just i, I think there's I, a running theme to your collection with kind of <laughs> <laughs> it's very a lot of men appearing a lot of like in, know. <laughs> it's all subconscious phallic <laughs> symbolism oh my god um, the other one is, is is a Jamaican one, but they're very they're so lovely his his pictures because you know he didn't think of himself as an artist particularly it was done for his it was his own sort of therapy and things. But when I when I lived in his house, I did uh, I had another one as well a seascape one, so that was rather thrill thrilling to bring them back to where they were painted. Maybe not the Jamaican one, but the others. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an amazing, amazing property. Like the gardens are so beautiful and um, it's so peaceful. It's in Kent and I I live in Margate and it's like an hour drive from here. And I loved going there and I found it so magical to think that he was there. Do do, do you have like an affinity, like a kind of connection to him? Yes, I do. Well, he he was born in Teddington where I grew up and I used to cycle past his, there's a blue plaque outside the house in Watergrave Road. And um, then when I got a bit older, I read his plays and his poetry in particular, I always really liked. And it was very me, you know, that the, the, that sort of um, obsession with trivia, really, and a refusal to take anything very seriously. I'm thinking of the plays, really. So they appealed to me. And then I acted in Private Lives when I was at university. And um, it was Paul O'Grady who told me that house was on the market. And, uh, oh yeah, I heard I that. Of... It's meant to be like a really, um, it's a tiny little kind of part of Kent, uh, kind of almost towards Ashford. It's kind of that kind of side of, of Kent, I guess. But um, it's so beautiful there. But I heard loads of other people. I think Alan Carr might live there and there's lots of sort of forces of comedy there. There's a lot of gays in the village. Yes. Lots of gays. That's enough. <laughs> a lot of rivals. Yeah. It's the need for a cull, I feel. Um, I think <laughs> I do hope the new owner is looking after it. I'm glad you said the garden was still nice. He's not yeah, uh, to get totally looking after it. It's so extraordinarily beautiful, and um, I think they've, they've they've done a lot of beautiful things there. I mean, it's it's stunning and filled with art as well, which is a great thing. Ah, uh, well, I loved. I was there for twelve years, and uh, I just felt the urge to pass it on to someone else, you know. And um, mm. and I missed being in Camden, so. Yeah, yeah, Trouble yeah. with Kent, it's full of criminals, isn't it? You can cut that bit. <laughs> we, we won't, we won't. So we're talking about criminals. Your um, mother was a probation officer and your dad was a police officer and yet your sister was a dancer, a, a showgirl, and you yourself went into entertainment. How did that, that absolute kickback from what your parents were doing to what their offspring were doing, how did that come about for you both? 
Well, when you say um, offspring of a policeman and a probation officer, your listeners will get a certain sort of staid conservative image, but actually they're a scream, my parents. My father's no longer with us, but they were like comedy double act. And they were firing off each other all the time. My mother's very left-wing. My father was quite right-wing. So they, they were... They were often coming to, not coming to blows, it's not, but you know what I mean? They, they were opposites attract, maybe. So it was, there were lots of heated debates at the dinner table. My mother was very funny. And my father's like the straight man. So it was all about having a laugh. And I was having a difficult time at school on account of being an effeminate homosexual in a Catholic boys' school run by Benedictine monks. So that was difficult for me. But the reward was to save up funny stories for the dinner table and that was be, be like sort of performance really to tell these anecdotes and make everyone laugh both my sisters were sent to dance classes from the age of three and just because i think that's what you did with middle class children i wasn't sent because i was a boy so i've always been slightly resentful of that but my elder sister frankie was very good at dancing and became a showgirl and then i went to sit in her dressing room when I was, I remember it was Richmond Theatre and I can't remember what show she was doing. But anyway, I was in this dressing room with all the girls and the feathers and the sequins. And um, at an impressionable age, I just thought it, it, something happened that night. You know, by the time I left that room, I thought That's, this is the life for me. I didn't know how I would get there, but uh, turns out it was comedy, but um, I wanted it to be glamorous comedy and mm. also I think all the all the things that were a problem at school when I then left and went to Goldsmiths University which is a, a very liberal place where you're encouraged to express yourself and all, all the things that were a problem before I decided to turn into assets so I sort of became more of everything that I was beaten up for at St Benedict's and uh so that's when everything kind of came together, the, the, the glamour and the comedy. And um, yes, without thinking about it, I'm, I, this is all in retrospect. You can see that um, that's how things work out. Have you played the Richmond Theatre? You must have done. I have many a time. I've done Panto there as well. Yeah, it's a did you theater. Did you ever have a moment when you first played it when you were like, I was in the dressing room here when I realised that this is the life I wanted and here I am on stage? Well, I did go up to the girls dressing i don't know if it's the same room but it's one of those you know that the ensemble are usually at the top of the building mm. um in the, the big long dressing rooms yes no I, re I remember that night very clearly um all the, they were all laughing and there were about i don't know 10 girls in there with the the huge showgirl makeup that was the thing but i didn't want to be i didn't want to be the female impersonator um i thought it's got to be male glamour and what was it what was it like back if you think like back to the mid 80s when you first sort of hit screens in everyone's houses across the UK um what was the response like you know when you go on the street and you'd meet people because it was in a way it was quite radical at the time like I think it was really radical I mean the idea of seeing like you're saying kind of male beauty this kind of eyeliner and makeup and and even the incredible outfits you wore like because to me I, I love dressing up at that age I was constantly wearing makeup dancing you know wearing all I would have loved to have worn all the costumes you were wearing mm. um but I always wondered what it was such a conservative time like what was it it's like? not too late Robert <laughs> <laughs> exactly I've got to bring it back um, what was oh, he it does. Like? He makes well, an effort. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was doing the same thing on the alternative cabaret circuit for years, really. So, from my point of view, it was just doing it in a different, doing the same thing in a different place with more support and 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 people that shared the same ideas. So we had a, a very open-minded director, um, John Henderson, and we had a rather brilliant set designer and Tilby who took Chagall actually as her inspiration for those sets and you can sort of see it somehow when you if you watch any of them so we the, what we thought we would do was would be create a world where that was my normality and then getting the punters in to play the games on sticky moments they were the ones who would seem out of place if you see what I mean mm -hmm. so that everything was turned upside down the surprise was the, well, I don't know if it was a surprise, the, the, the press, you know, the, 
the right-wing press didn't warm to me. And I remember being sort of pleased, I think, that I was upsetting the Daily Mail because <laughs> I, would have, I would, have, would have felt uncomfortable if they thought it was great, you know. But it wasn't, my life didn't change that much. It was, I wasn't recognised without the makeup, so I could oh. mince about. But the dog was, so Fanny was was giving the game away all the time, so people would stop and, and still actually people stop me with my current dog and recognise me, and then they ask, is this Fanny the Wonder Dog, who has been <laughs> dead about 25 years? <laughs> so oh. if, she, if it was Fanny the Wonder Dog, she'd be about 45. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is very nice because she, she retired about 10 years before she died as well. It's very nice that she's remembered. And I was in an airport in, I was in Auckland airport actually some years ago and uh, someone came and spoke to me and they were, all they wanted to talk about was Fanny the Wonder Dog. So anyway, that gives me a thrill. Aww. And, and when, I, when I do tours now, I always mention Fanny the Wonder Dog and she gets a posthumous round of applause. Oh, <laughs> so heaven. Legend. So you mentioned the alternative comedy scene and the circuit. What was the alternative comedy scene for people that don't realise? Was it more like performance art or was it just oh, no. off the mainstream? No, it was a reaction to the right-wing comics of the 70s and it was sort of our mantra was it was non-racist, non-sexist. And um, so we were all basically very left-wing and so were the audiences. And it it grew suddenly from uh, little rooms above pubs in the early 80s to the comedy store and jonglers. And uh, so you, I used to do maybe, you know, a couple of shows a month to begin with. And uh, a lot of the comics create their own venue from their, in their local pub. And uh, so, yes, it, it suddenly became something else. And then Channel 4 was sniffing round and they did... Friday Night Live, which you mentioned. And so each week, uh, a different comic would be plucked from obscurity and put on that show. So it was, I didn't really think any of us expected it to be a career at the time. I think we were just, there was a, where a lot of people who didn't fit in anywhere else ended up on that circuit. So it was mainly comics, but it was also singers and magicians. And it was proper variety of different, there was a man who used to play a, Vacuum cleaner. I can't remember his thing. <laughs> it was all sort of. He played a vacuum cleaner. What do you mean? How would you play? How do you play a vacuum cleaner? Just <laughs> blow down the tube and make noises. <laughs> that was his act. Sounds incredible. So it was me, Joe Brand, Paul Merton. There were a whole load of us who were still around, but that's where we all started. Paul Merton used to perform in his pajamas at that time. I can't think why. And Joe Brown was known as the Sea Monster, and I was the Joan Collins fan club. So we were all in our own oh, yeah. world. Well, you, so you mentioned like the performances, and and uh, you know, and, and the fact that it was felt very British, I guess, at the time, and it was very political, left wing political, and and it, it makes me think about Panto a lot. And when I go and work abroad in in the states, Panto just isn't a thing. They just don't get it, and it's such a British mentality and sentimentality and a way of getting a message out there and entertainment. Um, do you find it kind of fascinating, the fact that how much we love Panto and how much it does kind of define us, like Morris dancing, for example, is something you can never explain. Do you think Panto is an art form in itself? And why do you think we, we love it so much? It's all different things thrown in. So, you know, it is a story, but it's, well, the ones we do at the Palladium are a, a variety act. But... There's no fourth wall, so you're constantly breaking through the fourth wall to talk to the audience, then going back into character. It suits me very well because it you can't be told you're wearing too much makeup. You can't, you know, no one's going to say, well, that outfit is a bit extreme for Panto. It's, it's, and I never imagined <laughs> I could end up doing Panto, but it is a world that actually suits me. And uh, obviously I just play myself, whatever... I'm the spirit of the beans this year, apparently, but it you know, doesn't make any difference to my performance. <laughs> Actually, it went horribly wrong last night. I come on as a giant sunflower at one point, and uh, my face is appearing in the middle of a great big sunflower, and on my, I've got this like a Alice band on with all these pointy things 
which is like the stamen. And uh, so I come on and I say to a woman in the front row, <laughs> have you ever woken up with stamen on your forehead, madam? Um, <laughs> I think Americans that do come along, they, they don't leave totally stony-faced and baffled. I think they get it once they're there. It's just the idea of it. But it, it also has a sort of coziness to it in that somewhere along the line, good has to triumph over evil and everything has to be wrapped up and you have to have a warm glow about you at the end. That is, that's one of the rules of it, I think. But what do you um, think it is about, like, the British mentality that we have it, that we've created that? Well, I, I could go on about Commedia dell'arte and, you know, it does, you can trace it right back to what was performed in the villages of old England um, so maybe it's in our blood somewhere, but uh, I don't know about the British mentality. You tell me, Russell. I don't really know. I mean, it's like the carry-on films. It's like we have this Benny Hill, you know, we have this big kind of cartoony energy which we we hold dear. I think it's the fact that we have sarcasm and irony, and it's something that, again, you go to other countries, they don't get it. It isn't a thing. But for us, we're able to kind of, you say something and within a split second, you can have a sarcastic or an ironic response straight away. And it just is in our nature. And I think that as a a performance or, or a, a way of communication is very unique to us, you know, to the Brits. Yes. So you were mentioning goldsmiths uh, that you studied there. Was this where you studied your A-level history of art? No, that would have been after no, goldsmiths. Right? No, Before I goldsmiths did drama and English at goldsmiths. I wanted to do drama and history of art, but there was no such course at the time. But I did right. history of art A-level, and I, I had a really good teacher, so that you know how that works. You know, that sort of inspired me. Mr Innes, and I remember a lot, whenever I watch University Challenge, I'll wait for the art round and uh, my husband's amazed at my knowledge. I'm amazed that I can still remember things. That's how good a teacher he was. Well, you, you said this to me and you said that he was able to um, explain and expand what everything meant. And you had uh, a moment in an influential time in your life where you were mesmerized by this painting at the National Gallery, which was a Bronzino painting called An Allegory with Venus and Cupid. Can you talk about that moment? And this was your art teacher taking you to the National Gallery. No, no I, well, maybe it was. I think my friend Nick, I had only had one friend at school, Nick. We used to go out mincing around art galleries and the Port, National Portrait Gallery and the National Gallery. And I remember we that was our favourite. We used to, because it's just stunning uh, and it's huge. Um, I think it's on a wall on its own um, and it's beautifully lit and everything. And they've got one of those nice little leather benches opposite, or they did have then. But yes, it's it's um, it's. Oh, you're not going to ask me to explain the painting, are you? No, I, I think I've just read a quote. Where, well, I would love you to, but I, you um, said that you love a painting with a story to tell, and this is a painting for you that has a story to tell. Well, yes, it's 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 um, all the figures in it are. Venus, Folly, Time, and Mars, and, and one there's a little girl sort of peering around in the corner, and her, you don't notice it straight away, but her thumbs are back to front. Her thumbs are on the wrong hand. I can't remember why, but um, <laughs> it's part of the allegory. Oh, so it wasn't it wasn't a mistake by the artist who couldn't draw thumbs. It was a choice. <laughs> no, it's not very no. hard. Bronzino <laughs> wasn't stoned that day or anything. <laughs> Well, you mentioned University Challenge and the round, uh, how you always know the art history. So I've actually got three University Challenge questions about art history that I would love you to answer. (laughs) So for your uh, starter for 10, here is your first question. Depicting an impoverished pea picker and her children in 1936, Migrant Mother was a celebrated image by which photographer? Dorothea Lang, Jack Delano or Arthur Rothstein? I don't know, because that's photography. Mm. I know all about, you know, Renaissance and things. So, Do you want to have a guess? Russ, sorry to interrupt, but I actually know the answer because it's in our new uh-huh. talk book. <laughs> it's actually in is our it? new talk book, yeah. yes. Elton John has it in his collection, which is why it's, it's in It's a our tea book. picker. Depicting an impoverished pea picker and her children in 1936, Migrant Mother was a celebrated image by which photographer? Dorothea Lang, Jack Delano... Arthur Rothstein. <laughs> Tim Walker, I'm going to say. 
<laughs> it's, it's one of those three. It's a multiple choice. But you can have well, I've, it's I've, Dor- Robert's itching to tell us the answer. I can tell. It's Dor- Dorothea Lang. Yes. Second question. This is more contemporary. Polka dots and infinity rooms with mirrors are a characteristic feature of the installations of which Japanese artist born in 1929? Yayo Kasama, Tatsuya Miyajama, Yoshimoto Nara. You see, I thought Damien Hirst had cornered the market with polka dots. Did he make it from someone else then? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm going to the bottom of the class. I don't know the answer to that either. Rob? It's number one. Yayo Kasama. Yayo Kasama. Great. Third question. (laughs) Here we go. And actually, one of of her um, mirrored rooms, these kind of labyrinth room things, is on display at the moment at Tate in London. And it's incredible. I think it's at Tate, isn't it? Yeah. There's always always a line to get in, but it's definitely worth waiting. I went to the Tate to... I went to the Tate about a year ago to see an exhibition. I can't remember what. And I couldn't find it. It's a very complicated art gallery, isn't it? But did you go to Tate Britain or Tate Modern? Was it one or the other? And you maybe went the wrong the one. one on the embankment. Yeah, Tate Britain. Oh, no, it's Tate Modern as well. One's at the other end at Pimlico and the other one's down by on the South Bank. It was Pimlico. That's, that's the tube station. Anyway, I was probably in the wrong building. <laughs> Final question. Okay, this is a Renaissance one. It's very Christmassy, this question thing. Which famous Renaissance painting finishes this set of four patrons? Let me start again. I start, so I'll finish. Which famous Renaissance painting finishes this set of four portraits by the same artist? Lady with an ermine, Ginevra de Bensi, La Belle Ferrantier, and what? Ah, so it's Italian, obviously. Mm-hmm. Is it the Virgin? <laughs> Are they all part of a sequence? Is that what you're saying? Well, they're... they're Four portraits by the same artist that, if you know the oh. artist, that would probably help you. Who painted well, Lady with an Ermine? Lady with an Ermine. Might that be Raphael? No. Mm, Rob, get off your phone. <laughs> <laughs> My phone, I'm just checking. It's the Mona Lisa. Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, well, the first thing I was going to say, you should always say the first thing. I'm claiming Panto a- brain. I couldn't think of any of those answers. Absolutely. That's fine. But thank you very much for playing the game. We loved um, it. You got, it was like, it was you got no points. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> um thinking about that that british sensibility again one of my heroes was lindsay kemp and i was always really um inspired by the way that he you know took mime to such an elegant incredible place but and dance and movement but also the the crossover with pop culture and like mark almond and david bowie and kate bush and all of these people because i used to make pop music and i i just loved lindsey kemp i think total icon and i read somewhere that you thought lindsey kemp was really underrated especially in the uk can you talk a bit about your your admiration for lindsey oh lindsey kemp when I was about 16, 17, my sister was then dancing um, in a nightclub in Madrid. And I went to see her there. And because of David Bowie, I'd heard about Lindsay Kemp. And he was, he was doing a show. And I said, there was a matinee on. And it was Flowers. And we went to see Flowers. And it was in a beautiful, old, dusty old theatre. And I was completely mesmerised um, by what I saw. And... 
that was it. We, you know, I, I never, I never stopped um, watching him after that and anything he did. And he didn't perform very often in this country because the critics were always very sniffy about him. And um, I don't think they quite got it. But to, to see him in Spain, or I, I saw him in Rome shortly before he died as well, with people that really appreciate him and uh, in raptures. And as he got older... He was, he was 80 he died, when he did that performance, right? Yeah. yeah he was 80 right, when right, he died, yeah. I think. But he got old. He was one of those people who got better as he got older because it was more tragic. And uh, there's a little video of him dancing uh, to La Traviata, which lasts oh, yeah. about five minutes, which I really love watching that because it's all sorts of different things. You know, it is funny and tragic and um, transporting and I was when I went to Rome, someone recognised me and said, do you want to come and meet Lindsay? And I thought, no, I don't. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> when you meet people you love, I wouldn't say it's a disappointment, but it, he was such a sort of constant in my mind. I didn't, I didn't want to spoil that. Yeah, it breaks a spell, doesn't it, sometimes? I rather rudely said, I'm all right, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right, thanks. We're talking about meeting people you love, and I don't know if it is someone you loved, but you played uh, an art historical figure called Lee Bowery in uh, the Boy George musical Taboo, which was in 2002. You did the West End and the National Tour, and you played Lee, but you also met Lee in real life prior to playing him. Well, yes, he he was long gone by the time I played him, but I met him in the 80s. Well, I would be at the same clubs as Lee Barry and George and that sort of set of people, Philip Salon. Um, I was there to find a gentleman caller. They were there to sort of swan around and um, make an entrance and then they would sweep out. So I didn't, didn't I may have encountered him then, but I, I then met him. He interviewed me for a, pro, a TV programme and uh, we got on really well. So, yes, I did meet him. But you, you also saw him perform as well? Oh, yes, I saw him I saw him perform with the... Um, are you talking about the Enema performance? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love <laughs> to know about this before. This is like, you know, folklore. This is... Yes, I think it was in Brixton somewhere. The Fridge? I want to say the Fridge. Maybe, is that maybe right? it was there. Anyway, he he did this act where he would fill himself up rectally with water and then he would swing over the audience on a rope and let it go. (laughs) 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 It would cause much outrage. And uh, it was also very funny. It was another of those things that are two different things at once. Um, Do you think think that people could do that now? Do you think someone could, the act could appear now? Yes, Bobby Davro should do it, shouldn't he? Does <laughs> <laughs> his comeback? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. His career. He used to give birth as well. He had, um, I can't remember who the girl was, but he used to, she'd be concealed because he was very large. This girl would be concealed upside down and then he would lie back and give birth and he would all, all sorts of bits of liver and stuff squirting out at the same time. What was it like playing him? Oh, it was great fun. Whether I was anything like him or not is debatable. But I, I could do a sort of Australian accent, and it, I love that musical taboo. And I had those songs like Ich bin Kunst to do, and what's the other song I say? Oh, I've had a man or two. It's all about him cruising. He was a notorious um, picker-upper of men in anywhere he could, you know, toilets, Russell Square. I've had a man or two, in fact, I've had a few in dark and dingy places. I can't remember anymore. But um, they were great songs to perform, and I used to shave my head and have the the latex drips put on. Each costume change was a complete makeup change as well. So you'd be red raw at the end of the evening, and and you'd have about three makeup artists, and you had to get, get in the shower for some of them between scenes because it's really really oh my yes. god yeah. wow do you do you like a, a theater schedule i mean I, when i do plays i get i you obviously get into the groove of it but it, it is quite intense and and if you're saying that without, even within the production you're not just on stage and doing it you've got all these other affectations that are being thrown at you do you enjoy 
the process of doing a play or doing a stage performance? I do. And um, the more brutal, the better, really. I mean, this panto I'm doing at the moment, some of my costumes aren't costumes, they're scenery. And um, <laughs> so they have to be lowered onto me in the wings. <laughs> and you only wear them for about a minute. But if I'm not on stage, I'm getting changed into something else. And you are dragged around. But it's fun, you know. And earlier this year, I did a tour of The Dresser playing Norman. That's another thing that, you know, I didn't, wasn't quite sure if I could do it. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll challenge myself because it's a, a big part. There's a lot to learn. So I like, that, I like that as well. I don't think... The trouble is with being a comedian or being me, you know, you need to keep challenging yourself to do different things. So if it was constantly camp comedy, I'd get bored. We'd all get bored. So to do other things every now and then, that's why I do it, because I'm not sure if I can. When did you first realise you were funny? At the dinner table, I think, making my parents laugh. And Nick and I, our way of coping with the situation at school was to laugh about it. And uh, and I do think you were talking about how awful the 80s were in that, you know, it was Thatcher and all of that. And that's why alternative comedy, another reason why it came about, because it's a way of sort of diffusing things and... Uh, it's a weapon in, 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 or it can be a weapon. So, uh, mm. yes, it's very thrilling making people laugh and addictive as well. And also, you also know where you stand because if you're getting a laugh every 10 seconds or more, that's fine. That's a big tick. When I was doing The Dresser, which isn't particularly funny, no idea if you're any good or if people are enjoying it until you get to the end and they applaud or not. So um, it's good for the soul, I think, making people laugh. Mm. We've spoken a lot on the podcast over the years with different artists who were living in New York during the AIDS crisis and the pandemic that was in the 80s. And we don't, we, I don't think we've spoken that much about it in the UK. And when It's a Sin came on TV recently, I was really struck by that because I think culturally you often see the American perspective of it, which is equally, you know, emotional important. and important yeah. and vital. But I also you know, it sort of made me realise when I was watching It's a Sin that I wasn't really that familiar with what it was like in London, you know, say, during during that, that time. And obviously you yourself were, you know, living in London at that time, you were gay. And can you talk a bit about, a bit about the AIDS crisis and how humour maybe helped you survive, in a sense? Yes. Well, I'm trying to think, you know, we didn't really know what was going on for a lot of the time uh, in the early days. You know, there'd be all these rumours, don't sleep with an American, whatever you do. And then people were kind of disappearing. And um, it wasn't only humour, but it was the whole thing of partying in the face of adversity because what else could we do, you know? And that, that going out and having a good time became a kind of statement in itself. And uh, my friend Stephen, who died in, I suppose, around 91, I think he died. Or maybe, I may have, may have got that wrong. He was very ill and he was in the Broderick ward of the Middlesex Hospital. But he would phone me up and say, let's go out, you know, and he would slip out of his pyjamas <laughs> and put his leather jacket on and um, we'd go out to heaven or whatever. And then then he'd go back to the, his hospital bed and, you know, I mean, they weren't thrilled about it, the nurses, but... but that was the sort of thing that we were doing, and maybe it was avoiding the reality as well. But we weren't weeping into our handkerchiefs so much. It's not my recollection. And then when people died, you sort of, well, I sort of felt you have to live your life for them. So you couldn't let it bring everything to a halt. You had to carry on. There's incredible figures in the 80s that stand out and, and um, that were living through it and commenting on it and in some ways controversially commenting on it people like Quentin Crisp who's uh, had very kind of controversial opinions to being homosexual but you hung out with Quentin Crisp and you had this amazing time with him he had he had a motto that if you uh, bought him a meal he would hang out with you and you you had that experience with Quentin Crisp in the 80s in New York right I did uh, we, we were we were filming a peculiar program called Desperately Seeking Roger, which was about my search for Roger Whittaker and meeting lots of people along the way. So I, I did meet 
quantum crisp. And uh, I mean, when I when Nick and I were at school, his his book came, The Naked Civil Servant came out, and it was a bit like a Bible to us because you know. One of his phrases where it was about life was like a dash from cradle to grave under heavy gunfire or some, something like that. And that's, that was how life felt for us. And um, for all his controversial views, which came out later, at the time, he, he was like a, a warrior, you know, who would, to live the way he did during the war and so on. Yes, Quentin Crisp, you don't make them like him anymore, do they? No, and you you went to Staten Island with him on the Staten Island ferry. Yes, it was funny because he, I don't know how old he was then, but you got the impression whatever question you asked him, he had like four anecdotal answers ready, and he would just <laughs> reel one out. You know, I lived one pale hand or whatever it was. Or I like living in New York because you could hail a taxi quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but they were sort of set pieces, which is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you said you're talking about books and as well as being a a comedian and an actor and a presenter, you are a novelist and you have had, you know, Sunday Times bestsellers and you're currently creating this whole children's book narrative, The Bold, which I think you have eight books so far and you've sold like 700,000 copies or something, which is incredible. And it's about this family of hyenas in Teddington, where you're from, and they are illustrated um, by someone who's very in demand called David Roberts. And I'd love you to just talk about that whole process of, you know, because for me growing up, and I'm, I'm for Rob as well, I think illustration and children's books were so important. And, and Quentin Blake and Roald Dahl, for me, feel so entwined. And them images are so important to me growing up from them novels. And them novels, especially as a kid, were important. What was it like for you writing these children's books? And then finding an illustrator who you felt was really sensitive to your words? Well, they're very heavily illustrated. They're very popular with children that are reluctant readers because I think when you pick them up, you see lots of drawings. Well, we were were put together by the... It was the publisher's idea, really, and I'd, I'd written the first book by then, and there are four main characters, Mr and Mrs Bold and the twins, Bobby and Betty. They're all hyenas living disguised as human beings in Teddington and he did a sort of portrait of of each character and it was just one of those moments where it was exactly how I'd pictured them in my mind kind of you know got got it and they he writes very precisely the the lines are very clear so it's not all fuzzy and sketchy and he there's he's very interested in like the wallpaper in so there'll be a scene in the bold's lounge where they're all having a laugh as hyenas do you can look at the same picture for ages because he will go into great detail about the the wallpaper and it's it's because it's set in the 70s where i grew up in teddington in a house just like the bowls he's gone into that whole world of 70s fabrics and um he used to be a milliner and mrs bold makes her money by making hats out of unusual things like bird's nests and mud and things she finds on the rubbish tip and uh, sells them at Teddington Market. So that was of great interest to David Roberts because he, that's his world. And Mrs. Bold wears a big caftan, which is something he saw, I think, in the V&A and wanted to recreate it. But as, as we've gone on with the books, I now know what sort of things will he will be interested in illustrating so you also you don't have to write as much i don't have to describe it because i know it'll be in the in the drawing they've actually finished now the bolds the, the last bolds book the bolds go green finishes with a big party in bushy park and uh, it was only when i was writing it uh, i realized that it was a finale because all the characters from all the previous books were there having celebrating the twins birthday so i thought oh that's finale that must be the end of that because when you've when you've written a lot of books of the same characters they kind of speak to you they tell you they live in your head and they tell you what's going to happen and uh, they announced it was the end so that's that wow you must feel incredibly proud of that of well what's like lovely that. is making i'm making i'm used to making adults laugh and it came about because my literary agents 
I'd written three adult novels and no one bought them much. And she said, oh, well, everyone's interested in children's books at the moment. And it was another of those things where I didn't really think I could write for children. Um, so I thought I'll have a go. But making children laugh is such a thrill because they don't know who I am or care, you know. They're, and their children from seven to ten, which is a, it's a lovely age because they're very, very accepting of unusual storylines, shall we say. Are you writing more books now or, or going to work with David or another illustrator, more children's books? I'm not, I'm, I am writing another book, but it's not for children this, this time. It's a murder story. You know, you know the hyenas then? So there was a part of the research for this episode, which I totally threw me. I never knew you did a TV show called Nature Nuts, which was all about the kind of tour of the UK, um, wildlife lovers. And you actually met a painter who's like a wildlife artist called Robert E. Fuller um, in one of the episodes who'd been like finding all these amazing species of animals and then making art artworks of them. Can you speak a bit about that whole project and, and why wildlife is such a big thing for you? Yes, it is. And, and Robert Fuller, is, is um, he makes lovely little videos. He lives in the Yorkshire Dales and uh, is always setting up cameras to film birds or rodents or owls. He took me into this upper tree, like a sort of a hideaway where you could watch watch these owls just a few feet away. Um, it was it was an unusual programme because it, it was a sort of synthesis of comedy and um, a nature programme. And, uh, and they let me sort of do what I wanted with it. So I, we were going to meet people who were obsessed with different types of animals and with specialised cameras, film them in the way that they'd never seen before. So I was swimming in the North Sea with seals with some man who liked seals and um i went up to scotland to investigate the beavers that was a very nice episode yes now i love that i love that program and i was sorry it wasn't recommissioned it, they were, i think we did six episodes and then and that was that gone the cutthroat world of television you met an artist on there what was you saying rob what was the artist doing robert fuller yeah he, he paints um, all sorts of animals, but he paints birds of prey in particular with very detailed things of each feather. You know how they're all speckled and all of that. Oh, and he's, and he's right. very handsome. That's a, that's a plug for him. And he's handsome as well. Very good. Birds of prey and he's <laughs> no, handsome. He's, he's really check, talented. Check, check. They're, they're really beautiful, um, beautiful wildlife paintings. Well, before we got into our last question, do you have like, you, you said you had like a, a coming of age moment, I guess, in front of this um, Bronzino painting. But do you have regular visits now? I know you went to the Tate and you couldn't find the show you wanted to see, but do you go to like the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery when that reopens again? Are these places like regular um, destinations for you? No, they're not really. <laughs> um, sometimes the atmosphere in galleries and museums is a bit overpowering, do you know what I mean? It, it's sort of serious and worthy and it doesn't suit me really unless I'm in that sort of mood. There's so much in them as well, isn't there? Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to see one or three paintings rather than a whole load. But I, know, I think your, your feelings about art galleries is what a lot of people who are listening to the show feel. They feel like an either intimidation or they feel overwhelmed with information or they have an anxiety about how they're supposed to perform or be or how to navigate mm. through a space. It mm. is overwhelming, definitely. And I think that you've, you walking in and feeling a kind of guilt about not spending time there or a guilt about um, not respecting it enough to stick around but I think that's also completely valid as well yes I think it's that feeling of not not belonging or you know not understanding which makes me head for the exit yeah but I think that is the majority of museum goers and I think that is you know things like what you're doing for Panto is is incredible because and good Panto and good theatre is that when you're a kid if you see something like that it can change your life you know, it, you, you went into your sister's dressing room, it changed your life because you was around that energy and you could see it happening. There's so much bad stuff being made that they just bu like bust people in to go and see it. And there is this sort of thing. I remember seeing stuff when I was younger and I didn't get it and it wasn't very good. But I thought, well, it's on stage or it's on the gallery walls. It's obviously better than I think it is because it's there. 
So I'm the I'm the bad person. I'm the person that doesn't really get it. And actually, it takes a lot of going and a lot of you know um, opportunities to see things, to work out your own critical eye, and to work out your own um, like loves, your own things that you're drawn to. And I think it's the same with you know you go and see as many loads of movies, or you listen to a certain artist's album, or you read a certain writer's books, and you're able to critique them. The more you go to see exhibitions, the more you're able to critique shows, curations, the artist movements, the art, the way the artists like uh, are connected to other artists within a generation, intergenerationally between contemporary artists now and you know old masters, for example. But it takes a discipline of going and seeing and looking and giving yourself that time to work out what your critical eye is and what you like. Yes. And also what you feel, really. For me, looking at a painting is how it makes me feel is a sort of fairly immediate response. And I need to feel uplifted, really. That's what I that's what I like. Yeah, and it seems like that's what your collection is. That's the things you're surrounded by are very uplifting, poppy, yeah. bright, strong, but I, positive. I, I hear what you say about the more you see, the more you're it's like anything, isn't it? The more the more buggery jokes I write, the more that occur to me because I can see filth everywhere I look. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the more shows you do with the, the word mince in as well, then the more you can mince. Um, I've done a lot already. I've done you have, you have. Mince, you've inspired us all. So it goes on. <laughs> right. Well, we ask every guest two questions at the end of the episode. The first is if you could do an art heist and steal any artwork or object, or it could be anything um, from around the world, uh, what would it be? We can help you with vans or cranes or helicopters, whatever you may need to help you do this art oh, heist. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't, does it have to be a painting? It can be anything you want. Anything. Okay. A costume. I'd like the crown jewels then. <laughs> right. They're beautiful, aren't they? Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> You'd look really good at them. <laughs> would you wear them rare. or... The, uh, yes, all those lovely um, sparkly diamonds and things. Yes, okay, that's my answer to that. There you go. Okay, what? and talking about diamonds, I heard you have an amazing wedding ring or engagement ring that's quite it's like not, S&M. But there it, it like, is. I was desperate to see it. It looks like... Can you talk us through it? Ring, doesn't it, frankly? Mm. <laughs> but it's it not. Does. It is ceramic um, because metal makes my finger go funny. But if I got really cross one day and smashed my hand, it would it would break. And it's got one tiny diamond chipping. Can you see that? Mm. Which one is it? You're holding it up to the camera, yeah, lovely. Anyway, there you are. Amazing. What is your uh, favourite colour, Julian, and why? Oh, well, I like blue, but I wouldn't paint a wall blue, you understand. I couldn't live in a blue room, mm-hmm. but I like wearing blue. I like orange very much. Rob loves orange. Um, my husband's very minimalist, you know. I'm thinking of decorating now for some reason. He's obsessed with jasmine white, and that's that's all we're allowed to have on the walls. But there's a lot of art covering them up, covering up the jasmine white. Great. So jas- but jasmine white by proxy and blue. And orange. And orange, yes. Amazing. Fact, there's not any colours I don't like, really. So, <laughs> what, what is the best advice you've ever received? when it comes to your art. Yeah. I know that your mum told you the best advice was just say yes, and it worked to a positive when you did The Big Brother because you was doubting that, but a negative when you ended up doing crystal meth at the cock in New York City. So it, there's <laughs> yeah. a bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> no, my mother does tell me to say yes, and my mother's a big influence in my life, and I always ask her advice if there's anything I'm not sure about, you know. Like, shall I go on Big Brother or shall I do this that or the other and she says generally you have a more interesting life if you say yes rather than no Um, and that's true isn't it you know if you in terms of invitations or anything um, if you say no all the time then you're probably missing out well thank you so much well let's let's talk about the show you're in then so currently you're in jack and the beanstalk pantomime so how much longer is the uh show on for oh well it goes on till january the 15th Great. And where, where is it? It's at the Palladium, the London Palladium. Great. And you've got uh, a website that everyone can go and check out what's coming on and come see your stand-up and you performing yeah, Ju- again? Julianclary.co.uk, isn't it? Great. 
right? Yes, I think so. I think, um, do people still look at websites? <laughs> I guess so. I guess or you on, you're on Instagram, aren't you? Instagram now, don't they? Julian Clary, renowned homosexual on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is that your IG on there? My hand on, yeah. yes. Julian, thank you so much for talking to us on this Christmas day. You have made my Christmas dreams come true. Oh, the best present I ever could have wished for. And thank you for being you and being so generous in the world. And um, Exactly. Yeah, for being a renowned homosexual. <laughs> gives all of us homosexual strength. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, for everyone listening, we will be posting images on the Instagram feed of the artists and uh, things we've been discussing today. And please have a lovely Christmas, everybody listening. See you all soon. And thank you very much, Julian. Bye, everyone. We'll be back very Bye. soon. Thanks, Julian. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.